I'm Carol. And this is the Real Talk Recreation Therapy Podcast. On this podcast, we talk about real experiences and real research that back up the use of recreation therapy as a method of treatment for a variety of populations. We try to keep it real as we address concerns and successes that we and other recreation therapists have had as we all navigate this awesome career field. We don't have it all figured out, but one thing we know for sure is everything gets a lot easier when you can talk it out with a friend. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us. Today we will be talking about a modality that has really grown on us. Haha, <laughs> yeah, you might say that we really dig it. <laughs> yes, all jokes aside, today we are going to get down and dirty with a modality of gardening. We're going to talk about some of the research-based benefits of gardening as therapy and go over some of the best practices that we've encountered as we've used gardening for rec therapy. Just a reminder, everyone, all the references that we make to articles or websites will all be in the show notes. So if at the end of this article, there were things that you wanted to go back and research, don't worry, we will have them in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so to get started, let's get everyone on the same page because gardening can look different with different settings, different populations. And this is actually something that came up in the research a lot was at kind of a limitation to doing kind of what we're doing, like a synthesis or review of the research because people define gardening so differently. So we're gonna take for our definition, the very wide one that Buck uses in his 2016 report, Gardens and Health Implications for Policy and Practice. So when we say garden today, we're talking about something as small as your own personal plants in your living room that might only be a few plants, or something as large as a botanical garden that could be hundreds of acres. So huge scope. Yeah, and on that note, these gardens can be private, communal, or public in terms of ownership, access, maintenance. Also, the purpose and use of the garden can vary widely. Everything from a flower garden to a meditative garden to growing your own food source. Yeah, I'm leading a walk next month to visit a maze garden, butterfly garden, kitchen garden. Singapore is trying to make up for not having hikes by having lots of gardens. And just to update you all, Jana and I, unfortunately, no longer live in Hawaii anymore. So Jana has recently moved to Singapore and I am in the process of moving out to the East Coast. So if you're wondering why we've started talking about our job at the Soldier Recovery Unit in past tense, it's because we no longer work there. <laughs> so sad, but it's we're excited for the new adventures. That'll be good. Yes, definitely. Okay, anyways, back to gardening. I just think it's amazing how much potential that gardening has to transform a space. So for example, in the case of Jana taking a group in Singapore, which as I understand is like fairly urban, right? There's not that much outdoor natural space that is like naturally occurring, but they have created a lot of gardens, right? Yeah, they, they call themselves the garden city. So, and that's <laughs> totally a thing because I, I've been kind of organizing these hikes, hikes <laughs> said with quotations, <laughs> because yeah. when I look at them, they're, they're walks. They're not, they're not what urban I, hikes. Yeah. Urban hikes. Yeah. And they're, but, but yes, they like, there's these rooftop gardens. There's the Marina Bay. There's like this big famous garden, Singapore. It's very fancy. They're, they're all about giving back green space to this urban area, which is great. Yeah, that's super cool. And I love how much potential there is for people to create green space, create garden space. 
which leads us into different gardening interventions. We're not just talking about things like planting, weeding and harvesting, those which we would categorize under general gardening. There are also other activities such as garden walking, garden visiting, like Jana's taking her people to do, horticulture therapy, structured gardening activities, and garden group counseling. Horticulture therapy can and will eventually be a whole mini episode. Here, we're just gonna say horticulture therapy is led by someone who is certified as a horticulture therapist. And they have similar processes for working towards goals that we do as recreation therapists, but they're going to be subject matter experts specifically in horticulture. So they will specifically have required classes that are related to plants and taking care of them. Coming soon. <laughs> but for now, yeah, that's just, that's just the explanation we'll start with for now. Garden group counseling involved like a facilitator identifying general gardening activities and then processing with clients how those certain activities related to skills the clients were working on. One of the articles I read was a school counselor like taking children out to do a garden. So as they prepared the soil, the facilitators would talk about having a solid foundation to build one's life and things like that. Again, something that a recreation therapist might do, but just if we if we differentiate between those, or if when you're reading the research, it's differentiating between those, those were the definitions we found embedded in the research. Another definition we'll use structured gardening activities it just means that the facilitator makes a plan for the day and the clients do that thing versus everyone just showing up and doing what makes sense to them. I think that's it for getting us all on the same page. We'll explain other definitions as we go. So let's get into it. Yay, I'm so excited to get started. <laughs> The therapeutic benefits. Sometimes the research just seems like it was designed for us. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about this article today. So we're going to mostly use this article from Howarth Brettel Hardman et al. published in 2020. They did a scoping review of articles from 1990 onwards to, 20, to 2019, guys, which is awesome. And it was all answering the question, well, yeah, it was answering the question, what evidence is there on the physical, mental health and well-being benefits of gardens? Yes, very convenient for us in preparing for this podcast. So the researchers used the evidence they gathered to build evidence-based logic models to help practitioners like us create solid treatment plans based on what they learned in the research. So can you explain the logic model? Just because that word kind of confuses me a little bit. Yeah, so logic, the logic models were in this, in these studies were just ways to show like the input, the methods and the output. So the input was the garden or the gardening activities. And then the methods could be, well, the methods were the interventions, like the different gardening activities, where is it structured, horticulture, etc. And then the outcomes okay. were, how did this affect the populations? So it's okay. just like a very clear, and if you get the study, they have charts in there that are really awesome. <laughs> I can't say enough about this study, you guys. It was just very helpful. But yeah, this logic model, model is for people like us, for practitioners, to be able to see how can I take a garden and make it therapeutic. And so they just kind of show the processes that they kind of summarized from all of the other research they did. That's perfect. We yeah. should say that their parameters for mental health were psychological well-being, depression, anxiety, and mental status. 
They note that mental status includes pathological disorders such as dementia, schizophrenia, bipolar, and other things categorized in that area. They said typically gardening enabled greater social interaction with others and improved physical activity, thus improving overall mental well-being, reducing depression and anxiety. Yeah, and one of the studies they found, Van Denberg, AE, 2011, found cortisol and analase levels. Both of these are biomarkers of chronic stress. They're commonly used to measure chronic stress. They were decreased with participation in gardening, suggesting that gardening can promote relief from acute stress. And I just love it when articles show changes in the brain. I think it's so cool to be able to see those physiological changes. It just really gets me excited. Yeah, it definitely helps with like trying to measure more, I would say, qualitative things oh, you feel happier? And we're like, okay, like we can actually see where your stress levels are physically going down in your body. That kind of promotes that idea. So that's super helpful. So for those with decreased mental status, I thought it was interesting that they found a significant amount of articles that showed that gardening led to improved sleep, increased function and activities of daily living, perceived attention and improved cognition. Yeah. And gardening is super, like is a very popular intervention to study for people with dementia. So it's It's great to see that the research backs up the practice. Other benefits for mental health are improved self-esteem, improved enjoyment, vitality, improved positive thinking, mood, general quality of life, and engagement. Socially, some specific mental health benefits were reduced isolation and improved social networks, both of which are things that I think we can talk about having seen working with gardens. Yeah, definitely. Like when when we were working at the Soldier Recovery Unit, I would often recommend gardening to clients that like to be outdoors, but weren't necessarily Mm -hmm. sure how they felt about people because in the garden, at least the way ours was set up, it wasn't as, I guess, demanding maybe is the best word of a social situation as say something like board games or bowling. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it because usually we would have a smaller group of soldiers at the garden. So not a huge crowd and the way that the garden was set up, it kind of created a space where you weren't forced to socialize. Like if you wanted to just show up and do a garden task, like water the plants or do weeding, you could easily go and do that without having to socialize. But there was also people there that were very like open to talking to you. So if you felt so inclined, it was really easy to get into like a very comfortable, low stakes conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. And and you didn't have to talk about your life. You didn't have to talk about what was going on. You could talk about the garden. Like, and so that just, it was a very, very natural. <laughs> Sorry for yeah. all the puns today, guys. <laughs> a very natural way to build friendships. Yeah. So you're pulled into this community project, but if you don't want to go for go farther and become best friends with the people there, you don't have to. It's just a really great way to decrease isolation and build community because even though we weren't forcing people to spend time together, a lot of them did feel drawn to come back to the garden and work in it so that they kind of naturally just started to hang out with those people because they were all there. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. So, so convenient. So that, that was the research about the first logic model. The researchers did too. So the first one was they analyzed the contributions of gardens to mental health. And then they did a second logic model that analyzed the contributions of garden to health and well-being. So if you're like us, you probably think something like, all right, mental health and health and well-being, that sounds like a lot of those things would overlap, would be the same. And we will say that they're definitely 
was a lot of overlap. But the reason that the researchers created two different models is because that's how their results were divided. A high percentage of studies they examined were specifically about out outcomes of gardening interventions on mental health, but almost as many studied general well-being and those had different criteria. So their parameter for well-being was that stable well-being is when individuals have psychological, social, and physical resources they need to meet a particular psychological, social, and or physical challenge. And because the outcomes socially and mentally overlap from the previous model, we're going to jump right into the physical benefits because these were very specifically different in these studies. Yeah, right. Where the previous model emphasized physiological changes, like the biomarkers that I mentioned, these studies specifically report outcomes that led children and adults to have increased physical activity, reduced obesity, lower BMI, and improved heart rates. Does gardening improve nutrition? That was one of the subjects of 13 of the studies reviewed. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty popular question going on. And the answer in the studies overall is yes, there's a positive impact on nutritional intake of fruits and vegetables, though we could definitely use more quantitative evidence in this area. A lot of those studies noted that their limitations were it was the children reporting that they had an increase of <laughs> intake fruits and vegetables by one serving a day, which is, is still good, but overall positive, but definitely keep doing the research in that area. Yeah. Although to be fair, for picky eaters, like a lot of kids are, an intake of an increase in intake of one serving of vegetables a day could really be a significant increase if we so think true. that it's valid. <laughs> That is so true. There's a dietitian I follow. Her name is Jennifer Anderson, and she's the founder of the website Kids Eat in Color. And she's really big on exposure. Like the more you're around different foods, the more you're willing to try them. You don't have to eating them. You can be, you know, growing them in the garden or do different activities with them. But anyway, her information is mostly geared towards parents trying to help those picky eaters eat a variety of foods. But I think the principles apply for adults and uh, you know, everyone else as well. Yeah. I would say that during our time working for the soldier recovery unit garden, we kind of saw that to be true because all the produce that we grew in our garden, we and our soldiers and the people we worked with were the ones that took it home. So we had so many different fruits and vegetables growing that it seemed like every week we were hearing about a new recipe that a soldier had tried because they just had all this bok choy or all this papaya or all this, all these peppers, like it was so cool to hear them kind of get more into cooking, honestly, because they had produce readily available to them that they didn't have to buy, that they were like proud of having helped grow, that they would take home to their families and then cook with. Yeah, it was, it was a super cool, like we all kind of would come together. I definitely made some interesting like stir fries and soups and things like that. And smoothies too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a thing that I do when I doubt I blend them up into smoothies. <laughs> Although I don't know if I'd recommend Jana's smoothies too, because usually they had an interesting gray slash and or brown color to them. And I don't know, did you like how they tasted? I mean, they were healthy, but like... <laughs> I mean, it's all about how much chocolate and peanut butter you put in. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, now that we're talking about nutrition. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. But Carol, I think you did like, you were definitely like cooking some of those things. Like you did, a, I think probably a better job than me at actually making them delicious. 
So yeah, a lot of our a lot of our soldiers were from Guam and the Philippines. So I feel like I learned a lot more Filipino and Guam recipes from them that I now kind of cook regularly. So if nothing else, it was enriching for me. <laughs> yeah. We, Anyways, the research. We sorry. Say. Anyway, the research here backs up our personal experiences. In addition, gardening increased individual well-being, community well-being, enjoyment, improved community health, and improved quality of life in the soldiers that we worked with. At least it seemed like it did. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And gardening benefiting the community is something I think is worth mentioning because whether we want to or not, we're all part of a community. Clients and inpatient, hospitals, prisons, they still have a community. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they identify it as a good thing, or maybe their community is something that they identify as a barrier or something that prevents them from reaching their goals. Either way, there's research here that shows that gardening can have a positive impact on that community's health and well-being. That's kind of next level here. It is next level. So according to an article by Buck et al., Gardening, if brought into mainstream, can be an important mechanism for reaching healthy policy goals nationally and locally. Perhaps a goal for participants in a gardening program can relate to how they'll use their new skills to positively benefit or build their community, or even just be a way for them to positively integrate themselves into that community. Yeah, like the soldiers going home and sharing this with their families. And, you know, in doing that, it's also benefiting the individual. So, I'm just going to geek out for a second here. <laughs> Say you have a client that's verbally expressed or exhibited low motivation, right? Well, according to self-determination theory, three things increase internal motivation, right? Autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And these are all things that you can influence in your gardening treatment plan. So you give a client a responsibility for a part of the garden, let them choose what they want to do with it. There's your autonomy, <laughs> And then you're teaching them skills and giving them tools, sharing recipes, and then they increase their competence. And so we're beginning to build that self-determination. And then the final piece is relatedness. And it's, it's when they can, if they can take this project and use it to benefit or support their community, according to this theory, it says that the individual's internal motivation to change will increase. And the research is backing this up. As we mentioned, Howarth, Brettel, Hardman et al. found that participation in gardening programs led to improved engagement, improved vitality, and benefits for the individual and the community. It seems pretty magical, but it's not magic. It's science. It's evidence-based. And it's literally what recreation therapy was designed to do. And it doesn't just happen that way automatically. We as therapists have to actively design the programs with that research in mind. Yeah. So I think that leads us nicely into this study that you found talking about a flow and kind of like best practices. Definitely flow in a garden setting. So the research study that I found particularly interesting about what makes gardening therapeutic was titled Therapeutic Experiences of Community Gardenings, Putting Flow in Its Place. And this was done by Hannah Pitt, published in 2014. So in this article, the author talks about every rec therapist's favorite theory, flow, but she nuances it by discussing how things like how a community garden is set up, its proximity to where participants live, the actual physical movement involved in the garden tasks, and the feeling of autonomy and belonging in deciding what to do in the garden can have an impact on whether or not a participant actually experiences that flow state where they're like so engrossed in what they're doing that they lose track of everything outside of them. 
yeah, I thought that the article made some interesting points that are really relevant to recreation therapists, both pertaining to our therapeutic use of gardening, but also other activities. So I really liked her definition of emplaced flow, which is that flow happens or doesn't happen depending on the socio-spatial processes, which are all the aspects that Carol just mentioned. Yeah, so she talked about how the concept of flow is made and not found. In the study, there were three gardens. Gardens one and three were more aesthetically pleasing, or at least had been reported to be more aesthetically pleasing to the participants that went there. The volunteers at these two gardens had intentionally worked so that the space looked nice. It had amenities to encourage and create a more relaxing atmosphere. Whereas garden two was described as being a mess and neglected by the people that went there. And it didn't appear that much effort had been put into the aesthetics, which in turn caused the participants of the garden to feel like it wasn't designed for relaxation. So even if the tasks in the garden were relaxing and participants felt that they benefited from them, their first impression of the garden was that it wasn't really designed for them to relax. Like it probably stressed them out to go into a place that wasn't quite as green and lush and beautiful as gardens one and three were. I can totally see that being a thing. You see the weeds all over and you just feel overwhelmed, right? Like, great, we have a lot of work to do. So I think design elements really come into play on this topic of gardening. So you also mentioned that proximity to where participants lived impacted their experience of flow. What, how was that? Yeah, so the article again mentioned that Garden One was located at a small community center in the inner city, which catered to those living in the inner city. And then Garden Three, the other garden that was considered aesthetically pleasing, was located on the outskirts of a rural community. And their focus was to provide more locally grown food options to the people that live there. So both of these gardens provided an opportunity for the participants to kind of escape from their day-to-day lives. These gardens physically removed the participants from their sources of stress. So Garden One, the one located in the, in the inner city, was described by staff as an oasis of color and calm amongst urban buildings and noise, which sounds really great. And I can kind of picture what that would look like. And this provided a relaxing space to the participants. One of the people interviewed in the study said, you're separated from all the troubles and whatnot that you have at home. Similarly, Garden 3 allowed participants to physically go to another location where, as one participant described in the study, she was able to see town but not be in town, which gave her physical and a mental break from the stresses of home. I really like that they kind of give them like a very a very clear-cut break and <laughs> saying you are yeah. no longer in these in these stressful places. So you take them out of their day to spaces that provide them with an enriching, aesthetically pleasing gardening experience and help them get in the flow more. It makes a lot of sense. And something that is maybe easy to overlook, especially to a busy recreation therapist, I think taking that into consideration, even in small ways, can help our participants engage in the task and be in an environment without thinking about their stress. And that can be really therapeutic. So if you're if you're in an area where they're always stressed, it's hard to disconnect from that. And that's kind of what this is saying, right? Yeah. And I think that these design elements, I mean, maybe not even just design elements, maybe just organization of the garden, like trying to create a space that feels welcoming to help people not only like feel relaxed when they walk in, like you see a nice place, but also help them feel welcome, like that sense of community that we had talked about a little bit ago. I think all of those things are things that recreation therapists can kind of be intentional about when they're creating their garden spaces. 
whether it's making sure that the garden is organized and clean or whether it's making sure that you're just welcoming and encouraging the participants to be there that they really do belong there. I think both of those go a long way into kind of making an easier space for that flow to occur, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. The It's interesting because the, the leisure satisfaction scale that we would sometimes do with clients at the soldier mm-hmm. recovery unit, there's an aspect of that that is are you satisfied with things aesthetically? And mm-hmm. it was, there were a lot. I never of, understood that. Yeah. Well, and when I, I feel like talk, now I get it. Yeah. <laughs> when I would talk to people about it, if it was, I would kind of ask them if they felt like those things were important to them because some people would rate it on a scale based, like they'd put all like average, like sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having a clean space is important maybe. And it's not something that they were aware of themselves turning into, but if there were people that were very aware, like, no, I need, like, if it's not organized, if it's not clean, I, I have a friend that will go to a different rock climbing gym because it's more aesthetically pleasing to her than the one closer to her. And so that, that's, that does impact like your, your recreation. Right. And so some people are maybe more aware of it than others, but I think kind of what the study you're saying is finding is that we're all in tune to it at least a little bit, right? Like it's going to affect us at least a little bit, even if we don't know it, I guess. So that's really cool. And I think just to kind of add on to that, not everyone would be turned off by that not aesthetically pleasing garden. Because thinking back about the garden at the soldier recovery unit, I'm pretty sure if memory serves correctly, it the garden that we had, which has been turned into this beautiful space that people like to come to, wasn't always a beautiful space, but people were willing to come and make it a beautiful space. And those people weren't necessarily turned off by the aesthetic. I think they were more enticed by the activities of gardening and the community that they found out there. I don't know. Is that how you remember? (laughs) Yeah, no, I would definitely say you've got to look at the whole picture, right? Because there's Mm -hmm. like, if that's, if that's something that you just love being outdoors and if it's wild and if it's, if it needs to be tamed or, or if you're okay with that, then it's great. But then other people that are, I think it just, you, you got to do those assessments, right. And kind of see where people are and let them have a chance to do it and kind of see how they're responding to it. Yeah, definitely. Hey guys, it's Carol. Thanks for listening to part one of our episode on gardening. Join us in the next episode where Jana and I talk about our personal experience with gardening, as well as go through the API process with this and if you have any questions or comments for us, send us an email at realtalkrectherapy at gmail.com.